From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's December 9th, 2015. I'm Michael Lodemark, one of the show's producers. Today's episode features legendary director Ron Howard, whose new film, In the Heart of the Sea, opens nationwide this weekend. It's based on the true story of a whaling vessel that sunk after being attacked by a giant whale in the Pacific Ocean in 1820. The harrowing tale also provided the inspiration for Herman Melville's Moby Dick. The film stars Chris Hemsworth, Benjamin Walker, Killian Murphy, and Brendan Gleeson. Ron Howard recently stopped by the Film Society for one of our free talks, which are sponsored by HBO. The wide-ranging and often hilarious discussion covered his approach to filmmaking, working with Betty Davis, and his thoughts on 3D. The evening was moderated by the Film Society's deputy director, Eugene Hernandez. So let's go now to their conversation. Hi there, this is Alison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theater is turning 25 next year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manolo Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long-overdue renovations that will make this great theater even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org WRT25. Thank you all. Oh. Welcome. Well, I appreciate your standing around in the cold uh, to, uh, to be here. So This uh, was our first guest. She was here at 1 o'clock this? today. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank, thank so you. So she gets thank a good you. seat. Well, um, I'm going I'm to direct every answer to you. <laughs> uh, Ron, thank you for doing this, first of all. We appreciate your spending uh, part of your Sunday with us. I know you're in town to talk about the movie a bit uh, this weekend, and it'll be opening on December 11th. Congratulations on In the Heart of the Sea. Thank you. Um, why don't we just sort of an easy kind of softball question to get us started, but I think it would help sort of lay the foundation if you just give us a little bit of background. Um, tell us about um, how you came to be involved in this project. Were you always going to direct it? Um, tell me about some of the early conversations that you had that, that led you into this project. Well, I, um, I'd, I'd had a great experience with Chris Hemsworth uh, on, on Rush, uh, where he had won that role with an audition uh, that he actually made himself in a, in a hotel room from location somewhere, wherever he was working, and sent in. And Peter Morgan, who wrote Rush, uh, and who had also written Frost Nixon, uh, very discerning, critical guy, you know, and, and great eye about casting. He and I looked at each other and just felt like, well, he had everything it took to, to bring that character to life. And I was very impressed with him. Uh, of course, there's Thor and and Snow White and this and these and these uh, you know these these high-profile fantasy projects that he's been in that are so popular. Um, but I found him to 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 um, to be a, a really creatively uh, ambitious young actor, um, 
delving into the James Hunt character, uh, identifying ways to, to uh, give the character even more complexity. And I really enjoyed working with him. Fantastic attitude, work ethic, and everything. Then he, he brought me this project. He said, this is something that I've had my eye on for a while. And in fact, I recognized that it was a script that had been around for a long time. I had never read it. Um, but I took a look at it, and I thought it was fascinating, very challenging, you know, the water, the whale. I mean, you know, there's a, 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 a lot of meat on that bone. Uh, but um, I wasn't sure. Then I found out it was based on real events. And I had no idea that, that you know, the novel Moby Dick was, was, was inspired by a, a real event where a whale of that scope, that scale, that, that intensity, ferocity had, had sunk a, a ship. And then I started to delve into the real story, read Nat Felbrick's book, which is fantastic, um, and, uh, and it fulfilled a lot of things that I was really interested in doing and had always been. I had once tried to um, make a movie about um, uh, the Greenpeace ship Rainbow Warrior uh, and this real-life adventure that it had been involved in um, in, the, in the 70s. I couldn't get that movie off the ground. Then I once I developed and, and prepped uh, Jack London's Seawolf, and, and that was a movie that ultimately wasn't really viable. I wasn't able to cast it in the way that I believe we needed to. Well, here was an amazing story that had everything I was interested in, the drama of the sea, uh, the uh, interesting ways that, uh, to test uh, characters out there, plus this mythic component, and fantastic acting opportunities, uh, which is something that I'm always looking for. And I also knew that Chris... Uh, could was born to play Owen Chase when you read about who the real Owen Chase was what he looked like the way he carried himself and so forth So you mentioned um, not only being intrigued by it, but seeing some inherent challenges What were some of those inherent challenges in the in the material uh, and tell us a bit about how you overcame them? well, I mean it, as, as as I begin to promote the movie and really think about it, I, it it's 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 come to me that um, that this is really the most challenging and complicated movie that I've ever made, uh, given the the array of of uh, of, um, of 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 challenges. That you know, first there's there's the logistics of shooting something in the water, and with the, and with this amount of action, um, and and so some of it's in a tank, some of it's out in the ocean. Uh, for budgetary reasons, we had to shoot as much as we could at, at, in the in and, you know at sea. That's daunting. I had some experience with that with Splash and quite a bit in Cocoon actually. Uh, so I had some favorable experiences going for me. Then there's the question of the CGI whale, and um, something I had no experience with, but I I had seen Life of Pi recently, and when I went to the VFX supervisor who had done Rush, Jody Johnson, who had created so much photo real CGI enhancement in, in, that, in that movie, uh, which is about Formula One racers, um, where we had a lot of real cars, but he was able to put CGI cars alongside the real cars, and you really couldn't tell the difference. Uh, he said, well, you know, about Life of Pi, he said, well, that's the technology from two years ago. I promise you we can deliver this. Uh, and so I took that leap of faith. And then there was the fact that you know, it was a dense story. I felt like the ambition of it and the density of it was a real plus. People like that. I mean, look at the TV shows that we all follow now. You know, they're, they're complicated sets of characters. Um, there, there are moral dilemmas and complexities. And I thought this story had a kind of modern uh, um, thematic element blended with this big-scale 
uh, classic uh, adventure action story. So, you know, I, I, um, the challenges ultimately are what drew me to it. I just acknowledged that, you know, it was, it was going to be a lot of work and there, and, and, and there was a lot to sort out. Um, in a moment, we're going to watch a clip, but before we do, and this is our my little signal to the booth, uh, we're going to watch a clip that um, features Chris um, at a kind of an early meal with uh, a few of the other folks. Uh, but I think maybe a, a way to sort of introduce the story and introduce um, a little bit about the film, maybe tell us a bit more about Chris's character. Well, Chris is playing the first mate, Owen Chase, um, in, uh, um, as you would see in Philbrick's book, if you, if you, if you haven't read it, it's great, by the way, what a great, what a, what a great piece of history. Uh, <clears throat> and he's a great ri uh, writer of history. Um, uh, Owen Chase was the first mate who was very, very experienced and really believed he should be captain. And, um, Pollard was from a famous whaling family, kind of a whaling, uh, ar ar aristocracy. And, uh, and, and he was given the captaincy uh, ahead of Owen Chase, but uh, they paid Owen Chase well, and they said, you know, basically you need to support this this rookie, uh, and um, swallow your pride, and um, you know, and do what it takes to to help him have a successful voyage. And Chase was always a bit of an outsider because he wasn't born on Nantucket, and so there was always that tension and that feeling that there was a, a you know that there was somehow there was a little prejudice against him and his background. Um, help us understand a bit more, tell us a bit more about creating the world of this film, um, designing it, uh, the kinds of uh, research that you and your team um, explored to sort of create a world that would be um, not only authentic, but that would contain this, uh, this story and these characters. Well, the authenticity was as important to me and, and really everyone involved as, as it had been on, on Apollo 13, for example, you know, and, and so we really did let the research be our guide. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there, there, there are a lot of references, a lot written about it. Uh, Nantucket was a fascinating cross-cultural center <clears throat> in, in a way. Um, and, um, you know, we, we tried to, in, to quickly, uh, um, sort of reference as much of that as we possibly could. And it was the center <coughs> of whale oil, of the whale oil industry, I guess, right? Well, that's an interesting fact that I didn't know was that, you know, whaling wasn't just something that, you know, that that some people did like fishing or anything else. It was actually, you know, sort of these, one of these central um, economic engines of the United States and, and several other nations as well. And there was that kind of competition. And there was, a, you know, there, there, there was a global market for um, the whale oil. Um, and it was as intense and competitive then as it is today. And um, so that, that was there in the original script that I read uh, and that sort of, uh, it was one of those modern themes that I was talking about is that, is that, you know, things haven't changed all that much and that these guys are not going out, out there for the, the romance or the adventure. They're, they're, they're like people going off into the, you know, offshore drilling or the pipeline. I mean, they're, they're going out there to try to feed their families. And, um, and in this case, um, you know, it's not drilling. It's, 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 it's hunting and harvesting and butchering these whales. So it was, a, you know, it was a brutal existence. It was a dangerous existence. They often went off for years at a time. But they were also um, kind of the de facto um, explorers of their time. They were really the astronauts of, of their time in a, in a lot of ways. So interesting to, to learn more about the historical context, certainly. Um, but... You weave in this film together not only the historical context, but uh, the tremendous sense of adventure. Um, 
at times probably exhilarating right. and at times as we see in the film extremely challenging in fact pushing uh people to their their complete ultimate limits uh well that's what was interesting about the story and it sort of begins and i i i do sort of allow the movie to 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 be romanticized just a little bit that it is a bit of an adventure and and young the cabin boy played played by tom holland um, Thomas Nickerson, you know, obviously a real character. Uh, he was the cabin boy and, and the last survivor. Um, and, um, and, you know, it was, it was, he was wide-eyed, and I sort of try to see the movie from his perspective, and slowly but surely it begins to reveal itself as this intense, um, violent, dangerous uh, way of life and, and an experience that was uh, raw and primal uh, and sort of a little bit threatening to your soul. In a way. You've mentioned a couple of times, um, you referenced how the script evolved. Uh, you said this was a script that was out there, obviously it hadn't been made yet. You got involved. Were the, tell us about an aspect or a couple of aspects that, that, you, um, that evolved from the time that you got involved with it to actually shooting it. Were there areas that you explored or characters that you brought out or pushed back? Or, tell us um, about that. Phil, Phil, Phil Brick also wrote another great book called Why Read Moby Dick. It's a small little essay size book, and, and, and wow. it's and it's it's uh, it, it's fascinating. And I had a chance to talk with Nathaniel a good deal about it. But it actually uh, offers a lot of insight into what Melville was seeing in the Essex story, uh, in addition to his own life experiences. Because of course, Moby Dick is 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 fiction. But you know, he he took more than just the attack of the whale. Uh, he didn't do the survival story that was the story of the Essex and, and really the heart and soul of, of, the, of the story. But a lot of the themes, man versus nature, um, um, the, the, some of the darker ideas of, um, of uh, sort of per pursuing these whales out of a, out of a sense of, of greed and pride, fueling the pursuit. Um, the, these, are, these are ideas that are sort of evidenced in the story of the, of the Essex that are, are there in the, in the journals of the, of the survivors. And um, so I, I, I tried to heighten that. And, and the, the Ben Wishaw as Melville and Brandon Gleason as the older Nickerson, the survivor, I tried to make that not just a bookend, uh, not just a sort of narrative device, but its own sort of journey. And I was really proud of those scenes. The, 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 um, the performances were just great. And I, I tried to make that its own sort of psychological and emotional gauntlet that was, that was, that was dangerous in a, in a different kind of way. So that created a little bit of perspective and tension between these two stories. But again, I, I like the ambition of this story. And I feel like that audiences today deserve ambitious movies. They want them. And I felt like this was one of those, uh, one of those opportunities to, to give a, you know, it's an adventure, it's big, it's got lots of action. It, I, you know, I hope, I hope the people who see it see it on a big screen if possible. It, it's that kind of immersive experience. I, I hope that's how people feel. That's certainly what's intended. But it also has great human drama, uh, and it's actually about something. So it was a, it was a combination of things that I, I really found, you know, fun. Every day at work, the scenes were, you know, always about more than one thing. And, uh, you know, I found that, I found that really, uh, really interesting. To, when you deal with a true story, the first time that I ever did it was Apollo 13, and it terrified me. And the, the, I, I, was, I thought it might... Um, limit my creativity, you know, but I, even though I've always really loved history and, and thought about being a journalist, if I hadn't been able to succeed 
trans transitioning from a child actor, you know, in, in, into the career I wanted, which is fortunately the one I have. I, I probably would have been a basketball coach or a high school basketball coach, an English teacher, or a or a sports you know a sports writer, a journalist. Um, but uh, the um, what what what's great about dealing with a true story is you 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 can choose these events that are that stretch you know sort of what we imagine human beings can 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 face and 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 uh, choices that characters make that shock us and survive and surprise us there's a story that i want to tell when i was doing this the audience previews for apollo 13. Um, this is before any advertising it was just a rough cut of the movie audience screening where they hand out the cards and rate the movie it always played very well very triumphant ending and so forth and um and you know, I was I was thrilled as a director. Even though I have final cut, I always like to know what audiences think of the movie and, and try to, to try to reconcile uh, those things as as best I can. But you know, so 400 people saw the movie. It was probably like 95 percent excellent, and you know, it was just great, great. But there was one poor, one freaking poor. So out of the 400 cards, which one do I have to go find first? Uh, and I found it, and it was a it was a 23 year old Caucasian male, uh, and uh, uh, and I just didn't like anything at all about it. But it was not, but it was no real comments, just these big negative remarks with bold pencil strokes. Finally, I f couldn't figure out what was bugging this young guy, and I flipped it over, and finally it said, um, uh, uh, "Please comment on the ending," and he said, "Terrible, more Hollywood bullshit." They would never survive. Uh, and, uh, and of course, no advertising, a young guy, he had no idea it was real, so it was a true story. Um, and it made me realize then and there, well, this is the value of a true story. And, and you know, uh, I, this movie is a little bit of a cousin to Apollo 13. The, the themes are more complex. What the, what the characters face is darker in a lot of ways. Um, but it is also about uh, redefining your yourself in the face of that kind of adversity and and that struggle to get home and to and to survive and those elements are uh, are, are there and uh, so it's it's you know it's it's what attracted me about this story now everything you saw there was shot in the ocean um, this is sort of a labor of love mo movie from uh, from in terms of the the uh, from the actors, uh, the writers, uh, producers, and director. In other words, on a, on, even though it's a studio movie, uh, we agreed to contracts that were sort of uh, um, you know uh, like what you'd get for an indie movie, uh, because we Warner Brothers was willing to step up and support everything else about the movie at at, a, at an A level. And we knew that's what it would take. All the money was going to go on the screen. But it was such a rare opportunity to be a part of a story like this. So rich, so dense, complicated, yet really, really uh, exciting. And we shot, therefore, a lot of it in the ocean, more than you would probably normally do uh, given you know, technology. So everything you just saw there was shot you know, on a real tall ship out in the ocean. And 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 a lot of our survival, almost all of our survival uh, uh, sequences are in the ocean when the guys are, are starving. And it brought a kind of an, an extra measure of reality. It forced me to shoot it with a sort of an intimacy that I was really grateful for. And, and I tried to take a modern cinematic approach to this movie. So it didn't 
fall into the formality of the kind of classic approach. I, I allowed that in the first part of the movie. And then after that, you know, I sort of went, you know, for, for something very real, very spontaneous uh, looking. And Anthony Dodd-Mantle, who had also done Rush, of course did uh, Slumdog Millionaire and 28 Days Later, uh, you know, was just, was just great at creating that intimacy. We got to the storm, which was shot on the back lot uh, at Leavesden, which is the, the Warner Brothers studio in London on their tank, but it was in November already. It was getting very cold. We had to shoot at night because that was the way to get the look of the storm clouds having come in. And, um, and, and the, the, the ship uh, deck was on a, a gimbal that's kind of doing this, you know, a little bit like the bull that you see in the, in the rodeo restaurants, you know. The, and so it was kind of like doing that to the actors. It was kind of throwing them. And, uh, and, and in order to create the waves, we had these, these dump tanks, which we couldn't heat. So it was hundreds, thousands of gallons of water being dumped on them with our stunt coordinator saying, uh, we better, that one, dunk, 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 that one dump tank wasn't enough. Let's go with two, Ron. Well, okay. Well, all right. Uh, Eunice, our stunt coordinator, she did a great job. And um, they did it. They endured it, as with everything in this movie, in order to get at the integrity of this, uh, what their characters their, had really gone through. You know, they were just, they were brave, they were courageous, I'll never forget it. And later, I did the ice bucket challenge. <laughs> where they, you know, because I'm the director, I'm standing over here in a nice raincoat, you know, plenty warm. <laughs> I'm not getting much water on me. When I did the ice bucket challenge, I realized, oh my God. I, I was doing this to these poor bastards about six times a night. <laughs> <laughs> but they never turned on the director. There was, uh, you know, no, no, no mutiny at any point, which I was forever grateful for. It's amazing. Um, switching gears slightly, uh, and we'll talk more about the new movie in a moment, but I think it's also a great opportunity to have you here and to hear a bit about um, how you got into this business, talk a bit about your creative development. There's creative people in the audience. Um, you mentioned you could have been a basketball coach, you could have been a sports writer. That's fascinating to hear. Um, you started out acting at a very young age, um, but I wonder, um, do you remember the moment when you made that decision to not go into something else and you did want to go into directing? It was something, you know, it was kind of gradual. There was. When I was about seven or eight years old, all the, all the directors on The Andy Griffith Show had been actors. And I'd also seen my father, Rance Howard, who's an actor, still working today, uh, um, uh, do a lot of directing of plays and, and uh, work, scene workshops and things like that. Uh, and he was also a writer. Um, but I remember one time when I was about seven or eight years old, I was in this car scene that was being directed by uh, Howard Morris. If you know The Andy Griffith Show, of course, if you know The Show of Shows, Howard Morris was a hilarious character actor. Uh, on The Andy Griffith Show, he played Ernest T. Bass, this insane guy from the hills who was throwing rocks through the window all the time. But he was also a great director and um, got an Emmy direction, uh, I mean, Emmy nomination, I think, for one of the episodes of The Andy Griffith Show. And one time, as I said, when I was about eight, we were directing this one scene where we were all in the car. And... And uh, I had to keep leaning over, and I was kind of jamming my ribs into, um, uh, you know, you, you know, the handle of the, of the car door. It was really uncomfortable. And and they kept saying, "Lean over, Ronnie. Lean a little more to your left. Lean a little more to your left." And they said, uh, "He said, are you uncomfortable?" I said, "Yeah, I am." And he said, "That that okay? As an actor, that tells you that you're in the right spot." <laughs> 
Um, and uh, he actually, he honestly told me early on, he said, you're probably going to wind up being a director. And I don't know if he was joking around or not, but that's when I began to actually think about it. And my pat answer when I was a kid to what do you want to do when you grow up was, I want to be an actor, writer, producer, director, cameraman, and baseball player. Because um, I figured it could be a seasonal thing, you know. Uh, uh, I was fascinated by everything that was going on, you know, on the technical side as well as the creative side. I was privy to all those creative conversations, you know, uh, the the rewriting the script, the actors, um, you know, raising concerns and, and pitching new ideas. And they even allowed me to be a part of that, you know, which was just re remarkable and rewarding and, uh, um, and very, very, very gratifying. But uh, as, I, as I grew older, it was really when I saw The Graduate and those, period, those movies that were kind of coming out around that period that I began to see the movie experience as something different than what I had witnessed in TV. That there was uh, this immersive possibility, this, this way of kind of transporting yourself. And, and I began to realize that, that there, were, there, was, there was this job of being the director wasn't just kind of organizing masters and over the shoulders and close-ups. Uh, you know, it wasn't just doing the script as given it was it was it was creating a total experience for the audience and i just fell in love with the medium and uh, so it stopped being a pat answer and started being something that i really began reading about exploring making a lot of super eight movies and uh, and so forth then i became you know the, i directed my first movie for roger corman and we started shooting the day after my 23rd birthday you were on um another very successful show i, I certainly watched it every week um Happy Days at an age which was clearly, I'm sure, very formative for you. Because again, kind of the same question, but from that perspective of a teenager and heading into your young adulthood, um, the kinds of experience you gained from being on a show like that, um, not just clearly seeing um, the, the mass impact you could have on a public. Right. But um, again, you're at a formative age now. Creatively, I assume you were just like, you know, developing or shooting yeah. your own stuff. Like, tell us about some kind of the, the, the experiences and interactions you had um, in your life creatively in Hollywood at that time that would then lead you yeah. um, when you became a director or inspire you. Well, George Lucas um, um, uh, was about to get be one of the... Kennedy Center uh, honorees, uh, much much deserved. Uh, he he was a, he was a huge inspiration for me, and and that was uh, you know American Graffiti was a, a whole other kind of uh, cinematic approach that I'd really never witnessed witnessed before, with an unbelievable attention to detail, and also uh, um, you know a real penchant for authenticity, spontaneity. He encouraged us to improvise. Uh, it was it was a completely new kind of experience. You know, there were uh, there were hippies making this movie. There were there were actually women on the crew. It was you know I mean it was so different from anything I would experience in in old Hollywood. Um, but it was also a sensibility that was really inspiring for me at that time. And I had already been accepted to USC Film School. George was kind of a you know even though he was only 28 years old, he was uh, you know and and eight or years removed from USC. He was kind of a famous famous graduate, and um, uh, we talked a, a lot uh, about that, and so I, uh, by the time Happy Days of the series rolled around, I was actually had to leave USC Film School to do it, so I had to make this sort of career decision, I tried to balance the two things, but it was a great 
learning experience. Uh, I, I, at a certain point, um, uh, my wife Cheryl and I got married early. We met in high school. We got married at 21. And the show was so in, uh, all enveloping at that point that I, I realized that at a certain point, there a year had gone by, and I hadn't made a short film. I hadn't written anything. And, uh, and I, uh, I asked Cheryl if it was okay. We had a two-bedroom apartment, and I, and I bought a 16-millimeter uh, moviola, which is what you edited on in those days. And I, I said, I just want to buy it. I hope to use it. But until then, I just want to set it in the, in the bedroom that we're not using so that every time I go by that door, I realize there's no film in that moviola. And, um, and that sort of motivated me to re-engage. And then soon I got the, the Roger Corman opportunity to do Grand Theft Auto. I learned a lot about comedy by being around Happy Days because it was a different sort of tone. The writer's room, the jokes were harder. I learned a lot about comedy rhythms. Great comedy director, Jerry Paris. But one of the most important things that happened was that Anson Williams, the guy who played Potsy, had a great idea for a TV movie, and I got to direct it. It was called Skyward. General Electric sponsored it, and it starred Betty Davis. And this was remarkable. Now, she wanted to do the part because it was a really good role for her at that point. It was about a, a, a young paraplegic girl who wanted to fly a plane. She wanted the freedom of flight, and Betty Davis played this aerobatic pilot who agreed to teach her. Sort of over the, over the parents' concerns and so forth. So it was an inspirational um, story. Betty Davis really wanted to do it, but it really bothered her that this guy from a sitcom was directing. <laughs> so whenever I would talk to her on the phone, she you know she'd talk a little bit about the script. I hadn't met her in person. She kept calling me Mr. Howard, and I said, "Well, Miss Davis, please just call me Ron." And she said, "I will call you Mr. Howard until I decide whether I like you or not," and hung up. So I was tossing and turning and trying to figure out what it was going to be like to direct Betty Davis. I had done my Roger Corman movie. I'd done a couple of other uh, TV movies. But this was the first time I was really working with somebody that formidable. And my father, Rance, gave me some great advice. He said, you know, look, she's, she's a pro. She's a pro's pro. And every good actor knows they need great direction. So, you know, you know your way around. You know, uh, be thoughtful. Um, choose your words. But do your job. Don't back away from that, uh, and she'll respect that. So we went into the first day of shooting, and uh, you know, all I knew was that we were shooting in Texas, in Plano, Texas, in August. It was unbelievably hot, but I'd seen pictures of her and her favorite director, William Wyler, and William Wyler always wore a suit, jacket, and tie, so that's what I did on the first day. <laughs> but I went walking up to her to give her a direction, and she acted startled. You know, she went, ah, ah, oh. And then for the whole crew, she said, you know, uh, oh, I saw this child walking toward me. I couldn't help but be startled and wonder what could this child possibly have to say to me of any consequence? Ha, 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 ha. So I went, ha, 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 too. I turned around and kind of popped a couple of tums, you know. And, but I went ahead and I gave her the direction that I had intended to give her, and, and, and we worked our way through the first part of the day. And finally there was a scene later in the day where she, she was really, the staging was not working, and she had some instinct of hers was really not, not working well. And I went in and I made an adjustment. I said, Miss Davis, I think you should set the glass down here and exit on this line instead of waiting that other line and then maybe try a turn at the door. I had some thoughts, and she said, oh, I, I don't think that will work for me at all, but I'll try it. You know why? Because I'm always the director's kid. Ha, 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 ha. 
And I said, well, I would appreciate it if you try it. Let's, let's just do a rehearsal. And we did it. And she tried the rhythm that I was talking about. And halfway through, she said, you're right. I understand what you're talking about. Let's shoot it. And we did it. And she said, thank you very much. Now, when I said, good night, Miss Davis. Uh, great first day. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. She said, good night, Ron. And, and she patted me on the ass. So it, you know, it, it wasn't all honeymoon and uh, lovey-dovey after that either, but, uh, but it was a great experience and a learning experience that I wouldn't have had had not Anson Williams had that idea and also the, the passion as a producer to pursue casting Betty Davis, which, which is what he did. That's great. Great story. Thank you. Um, I don't know where to go from that. So, In the heart of the sea. What are we here for? Um, I'm going to let our audience take us uh, through the next few minutes. Uh, let's see what kind of questions they have. Um, anything about the new film, anything about uh, the past. Uh, we do have a microphone, which is right there. Test, test. Um, and we'll go uh, up here in the, sec in the second row in the center, and then we'll go over to you. Uh, right here in the center. You're the next. I was uh, looking back at your uh, filmography, and I noticed you really haven't done a sports film, um, uh, or at least something that was, you know, overtly a sports film. I was curious to know why that was, and uh, also with this film, um, I was curious to know why you didn't, I mean, the temptation is to do it as 3D. Was there ever a temptation or any interest in that, and why you didn't? Okay. Uh, well, I've never done a team sport uh, movie, although I had, I've had, I had a little league scene in Parenthood, um, uh, and a drunken softball scene in, uh, uh, in Gung Ho. Uh, I did do Rush, Formula One racing movie, yeah, and Cinderella Man, a boxing movie. But I love team sports, and, uh, and one of these days I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find the right one to do. Um, we didn't have the budget for 3D. I had no experience with 3D. I didn't know what shooting on the water with 3D cameras would be like. So, you know, we, Warner Brothers agreed, and we didn't shoot in 3D. But the movie was originally slotted to go out last March. It was finished, and they started the test screenings. And, and, and I'm grateful. The movie played very well. It tested very well. And Warners came back to us and said, what do you think about moving it to December? We have an open, an open slot in, in December. Brian Grazer and I, uh, along with the other producers, really felt like the movie uh, was best served uh, playing at that time, that it's a, it's a time when uh, movies are a little more open to dramas, and even though this is epic and has this action adventure, it's very much a drama. Uh, and so we, we agreed. And because I think the studio also liked what, what, the, what the final outcome of the movie was, they also came to me and said, what do you think about a 3D conversion? And I said, well, I've never had any experience with it. Show me some tests. And then I began to see the movies that I'd seen in 3D, what had been shot 3D, what had been converted. I began to feel it was possible. I saw the tests. Just like the whale technology, the technology around 3D conversion is kind of stunning in, in what's, what's, what's been achieved. And I just saw, we've had this entire period of time to work on it. Last week, I saw the final 3D print. And I would just say, look, the movie was designed to be a big screen 2D experience, and I'm really proud of the way it plays. But if you like 3D, I'm really happy with what it does for the movie. And, um, and so, I, you know, I, I, those who, who enjoy the 3D experience, I would really recommend that they see the movie that way. Okay, we're going to go there, and then we'll go over to you. Yes. Hi, Ron. My name is Jackie Lee. I have a question in regards to marketing. 
marketing is pretty much an intuitive. I mean, after a while, when you have a great story or a great brand, you pretty much know the target audience you want to reach. In the heart of the sea, you being a director, do you participate in the marketing and do you know who you're targeting towards this film? Yeah. Um, good, well, it's a good question. I don't think of myself as a, as a, as a great marketing um, a mind. Um, in fact, I've had a lot of movies that I suspected wouldn't do very well, but that I was passionate about that in fact wound up being you know, top 10 movies in their year or top 20 movies in, in, at, at the box office, like Apollo 13. Or, you know, I never thought that would be particularly commercial, beautiful mind, and they turned out they, they were. Other times I've been wrong about movies that I guessed would be. Brian Grazer has a much better uh, nose for these things. So I kind of fall in love with the movie, and, um, and, I, and I tell the story that, that uh, I'm eager to share. Now, in, in this case, you know, I, I think the, the themes are, are adult. We're PG-13. We found in our screenings that, that sort of, uh, you know, young adults and older kids really like the movie. And, and, uh, but, uh, but I didn't back away from, you know, the, the, um, the mature subjects uh, in, 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 the, in the story. And, uh, um, and, I, and, you know, and I really hope it finds its audience. It's, and I really do hope people see it on a, on a big screen. I'll admit, I was a little frustrated that the movie Rush, which was so well reviewed, we had such great test scores and all that stuff, that it was, it was okay here in the US, but not enough people saw it on the big screen to satisfy you know, the, the, the director, because it really was a big screen adventure. And then people kept coming up to me afterwards and saying, wow, I didn't know what to expect with that movie, and I finally caught up with it. You know, I saw it on an airplane, or I saw it on my iPad or something, <laughs> and wow, really good movie. And I thought, oh man, okay, good, thank you for that compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but where were you when you could have really seen the movie? Um, and, uh, you know, and I sort of feel that way about In the Heart of the Sea, I'll admit. Okay, over here in the third row on the end. Hi. Hello. Um, so my question is, you've spoken about why you like making uh, and telling true stories. Um, but what struggles do you face when you adapt stories that people are familiar with? Uh, well, uh, you know, it's it's always uh, an, um, an editorial decision, and this is always a, a, a creative and personal interpretation of real events. You know, it's it's uh, some movies are are closer to being, a, you know, to use a journalistic term, a kind of a TikTok than others. Um, and uh, and and but I think what you have to do, um, and Peter Morgan, who writes, you know, you know brilliantly uh, with, with real with uh, with with real characters and real events but all, also uh, freely invents scenes but that invention is almost always uh, targeted at at, at revealing um, a, a, a discovered truth about those characters that can't necessarily be sort of coalesced uh, without creating a scene that that sort of defines it um, and um, so you know there there's there's definitely um, uh, artistic license taken with this story, but not in terms of uh, the framework of of the journey, the experience, the the feeling um, that they had, um, and um, um, and I think the, the the truth of that industry at that time, and I hope a little bit of Melville's uh, creative struggle to, um, to to sort of tackle the subject of this story. The next question is up here in the back, and the microphone's coming right behind you. Then we'll go over there. How you doing, Ron? Hi. Uh, I just had a quick question. Um, what actor or actress would you most like to direct in the future? 
And on a personal note, would you have time to take a picture of my daughter after this is done? <laughs> she, she looks like she does belong in our family. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, uh, you know, look, I, uh, th- there are so many talented people that to cite one would, you know, would, would be to ignore so many others. And I, I really believe that between television, um, you know, hell, uh, you know, internet content uh, and the movies uh, and the growing international scope and outreach of those movies, uh, it's, uh, uh, there are, you know, sadly, so many talented people that I'll never get to cast, and, and, and so many great options with just about every movie. And I know that sounds like a very diplomatic answer, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's always about finding a, ro- a, a, a you know, a, a story, a set, um, a set of characters that are, that are really worth bringing to life, and then being incredibly ambitious about going out there and, and finding the people who can not only fulfill my sense of what it should be, but take it to another level yet. Um, on the stairs, this woman with NYC yes. cap. Hi. Um, so I saw all that water, and I thought about flashbacks to Sandy, mm-hmm. um, the superstorm that hit New York City. And I was a volunteer in that, and I was wondering, did you draw on any research and what that research was for uh, climate change or anything to do with the environment or water in general? Yeah. Thank uh, you. Well, uh, you know, nothing related to climate change. Lots related to being at sea and particularly storms. There's a fantastic um, film. In, um, in, in, in fact, you can get it at the South, South Street uh, Seaport. Uh, um, and uh, which is where I found it, uh, that a, a, a young guy did in, I think, 1930 uh, uh, about a, a tall ship going around the horn. And that was, that was uh, unbelievable, where he kept climbing up and, and sort of tying the camera off in places, and you could see the water swamping the deck and feel the movement. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, so we had lots and lots of, uh, of reference material. One of the things that I, that I do when I'm making a movie, fiction or nonfiction, is I start gathering that kind of visual material, and I still photos go up on the walls, you know, these color Xeroxes from all the departments, the art department, the wardrobe department, our own research, and then I also put um, TVs in various places, and we just run a loop of um, documentaries, movie sequences uh, that uh, help establish a kind of an aesthetic and a sense of what it is that we're trying to achieve. And we had, oh, we had, you know, YouTube footage, we had racing footage, we had Greenpeace footage, uh, Whale Wars, a Deadliest Catch, uh, you know, uh, silent movies about real whaling. Uh, the John Huston Moby Dick movie was there. Uh, scenes, of course, from from Jaws, Ridley Scott's White Squall. I mean, we had, we just had a lot of great reference material there playing uh, all the time. The themes that you're talking about, not so much climate change, but man versus nature, is there in the Moby Dick story, and and that's I think one of the things that he gleaned from this story of the Essex. Because when you read the men's journals, they wondered in their writing whether this was some sort of divine retribution. Was this nature or God's hand punishing them in the form of this whale? They almost felt like there was something um, supernatural about it, and it called into question sort of their place in the world and, 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 their, and their role in this, uh, in this industry. Even then, even then, uh, you know, uh, when um, this is how they made their living. 
We don't have too much time left. All the way in the back. Hi. You've taken us through many of our childhoods and borne us aloft in many different genres. But I, there's a show right now of Shackleton from 100 years ago and how his whole boat was captured in ice and, yeah. of course, the tra tragic story there. But I wondered if it's not difficult to select a proper... Um, a clip, because the clips that you showed, although they're splendid for you, they're in medias res for us, and we don't really get the significance of them. And I see on television when people show bad clips, I go, oh, that's a film I don't want to go to. <laughs> and that's not fair to the film, but right. the clip is the responsible one if it doesn't adequately encompass the fabulosity of the film. <laughs> I like that fabulosity word. <laughs> um, uh, the... Uh, uh, you know, always a challenge, particularly the more complicated the story in a lot of ways, the tougher to, um, to, to sort of determine which clips to show. And, uh, you know, and, and so I am always hoping that while we do, we do our best to choose clips, build trailers and so forth, um, you know, that's not an area that I control, but I have some influence over it. You know, you always hope it's somehow getting a message out there. Um, and, 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 you, and, and as a director, um, you know, you also hope that people will um, that there'll be some trust that will sort of say, well, if, if you know, if uh, if if this filmmaker's involved, you know, I'm I'm going to trust that this is going to be worth my time. That's more and more challenging. And look, I feel it too as a consumer, as a fan. I love the movies, but there are lots and lots of competition for movies, and that's one of the things that I like about this film, because I think it demands to be seen on a big screen. It demand, and I and I I really like the fact that we're out this time of year a time when people don't just think about the one movie they want to go to, you know, they start thinking about the two or three films they might want to check out, and I certainly hope we fall into that category. Well, the movie, um, the movie opens December 11th. You can see it on the big screen, 3D or 2D. Um, here's what we're going to do. We do have one more scene from the, from the movie. Um, so that we can let Ron get to his next engagement, I'm going to ask everybody to stay in your seats. In a moment, we're going to thank him for attending. Uh, and then um, as he's leaving and as we get ready to finish up, we'll show you that last clip. So this is a sign to the booth to get ready to show it. Uh -huh. And you'll have a last taste of the movie, but you'll have to see the, uh, the real drama in the theater. And let's so, hope that you all label it with fabulosity, because I like that. That's a great Thank word. you very much, Ron Howard. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>